The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. The last time I was here, um, Mahapajabadi passed away. I don't know if many of you were here, but it was uh, a very dramatic moment when um, there was a little play about the last moments of Mahapajapati's life. She was the uh, stepmother for Buddha and had to ask permission to pass away after 120 years. Um, So we got all dressed up and some of us were dressed as little priests and um, there was a a Buddha person in a golden robe and uh, I got to be Mahapajapati and uh, at the end they dropped a veil over my face and I collapsed like this. It's the last time I was here. (laughs) So it's lovely to be here and wide awake and alive. (laughs) I've been, been engaged in something very curious um, and it's so new that I'm a little hesitant to talk about it but at the same time it's so interesting I um, have been involved with Zen as the introduction said uh, for more than 40 years actually which is half my life and um, I've kept a journal ever since I was 11 years old. And I've always kept them in a box in the attic. And a friend said a few weeks ago, we should get those down. You should do something with them. So she took them down and (laughs) stowed them away in my office. And then I realized that if they're there, maybe I should uh, look into them. So it's um, been eye-opening in many, many different ways. And one of them is uh, the thing I want to talk about today, about the era of my life when I was so filled with doubt, with how devoted I was to practice how um, immersed I was in it. My teacher always said, because he was born in a Zen temple in Japan, that he was pickled in Zen. (laughs) And I began to feel like I'd been pickled in Zen also. And I started seeing things about myself that I didn't, like to admit it was it was very shocking I I was always a very good girl and always kind of prided myself on doing the right thing at the right time always 
And I was caught in a lie in the Sangha as we were developing Jikoji. I just wrote to my friend because I found it in the journal that I did this terrible lie and I got in terrible trouble with my friend and it eventually worked out and all the unks that went into it um, was reflected in the journal but it didn't say what the lie was. And I wrote to my friend to ask him, and he wrote back and said he didn't remember either. So So not a big deal, apparently. But to me it was a very big deal, and it caused me to wonder about the whole practice. If I was such a rotten, lousy, ignorant, bad person, how could I possibly be even entering the place where the Buddha sat? Doubt is a hindrance. It's also a gift. And as you um, study Buddha's life, there were times when he was encouraging doubt. He actually began his practice with doubt. That's what brought him under the tree in the first place. He had studied with the greatest teachers that he could find, the two very best philosophers, and had excelled And yet, he couldn't, he couldn't find a way to feel confident in it, in what they were teaching. When he got up, he said, when he stood up, suddenly everything was the same. He wasn't, had this wonderful sensation that he had while he was sitting just disappeared and he became the same person that he was before. So he began to doubt his teachers. And then he practiced himself for a long time and tortured himself trying to tame, tame the body, tame the mind, starve it. And that didn't work either. He began to doubt that effort. What am I doing? And so that's when he sat down and decided to do nothing but simply to be with the whole thing and just to see. And what he saw was kind of what I saw. He saw Mara. He saw this sort of monster-like, devil-like creature who came and challenged him, um, accused him, tempted him, lured him. And each time the encounter happened, Buddha would 
look at what was being presented out of himself. And then he would say, I see you, Mara. I see you. That was the essence of it. That is the essence of it. That there is so much in our life that we uh, don't see. We don't allow ourselves to see because it feels dangerous. It feels um, that too much would be exposed that isn't proper or right, that would look bad in some way. And yet, and yet. So the hindrances are very, very interesting and helpful. to doubt ourselves intellectually is really important. To doubt our life and everything that we encounter, um, including our practice. Buddhism, if we're practicing Buddhism, isn't a belief system. We don't have to believe anything. In fact, it's, it's dangerous to believe anything because life is so complicated and it changes so quickly that whatever we believe in one moment morphs into something else. And we develop the understanding of accepting life as it morphs rather than trying to pin it down into one particular form. It's a huge challenge for us because we like everything to be settled and fixed. And it's not. And our practice is a wonderful gift in that way because we have to see that. We have to, we're not allowed to believe it we have to see how it goes and let it go. Let it come and let it go as it wants to be. But there are other kinds of doubt um, that heartbreaking doubt that I discovered that is really important also to allow the insight into our own being to see what this is as what, what we carry in the background of our mind all the time. We're constantly telling ourselves a story about what this is, what I think and what the other person thinks and whether how I measure up to that other person and they measure up to me. Um, It's sort of the story of our life that we aren't really noticing most of the time. So when we begin to doubt ourselves, we actually begin to connect with that background mind. 
we begin to wonder what's really going on in here. What do I really think? And that's a wonderful practice. Just to stop when an idea comes to mind, oh, that's all wrong, and think, where'd that come from? Do I really think that? And really, is that wise? And sometimes everybody else thinks that, and maybe actually I don't. And I've just gone along with the crowd. These things are extremely helpful and also extremely interesting. And sometimes I think the best things about this practice is that it's so interesting. And it doesn't stop being like that, ever. There's no stopping place in this practice. There's no achievement where we just stop and sit in the glow of it and be all perfect and wonderful. There's nothing like that. (laughs) I'm sorry if somebody thinks so. (laughs) It's really the other way. It's the other way. And we encounter the hindrances over and over again. We get sleepy when we sit. We get lazy. We get lusty and want more than we have any any right to sometimes. We want more than we need. Um, We're full of wanting. It gets in our way. Hindrance just means getting in the way of it, meaning life, our life, our authentic life. A gift always. Desire is a wonderful gift. Although in Zen we have a vow, desires are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Meaning one by one by one. (laughs) The only way. And of course there's aversion. Pushing things away we don't like. Trying to grab the things that we do like. Sort of like those birds that bring in the pretty little rocks and surround itself. We just surround ourselves with the things we like and keep out the other stuff. And then, of course, there's um, the whole effort of um, just trying to settle down and not being able to. And I think, in some sense, that's what we're all going through, especially now. We call it angst or anxiety or the disturbed feeling that feels like it shouldn't be 
we go through this over and over in our life and if we can't come to terms with it, it becomes a torture. And it hinders all of our efforts, gets terribly in the way. And mostly in the way of uh, trusting ourselves and trusting our life. Sometimes things just seem so awful that we can't trust any of it anymore. Doubt, I think, is the sort of collection for all of the hindrances that all of them sort of boil down to different kinds of lack of confidence. Lack of believing in our own self-life. It's the first thing we know and it's the last thing we will ever know is this life, this body, this breath. This view. We project so much that we forget that it's this view that is being here. It's what being means. And it's the mystery of it. In a way, it's the part we can't really understand. And not understanding it create that kind of anxiety and doubt. And yet, as we practice and begin to face Mara, face our doubts, face the funny way our mind works, based mostly on all the causes and conditions that came together to make us this, brought us to this place, things that people told us, things that we experienced. It all so many things that we can't even name them. We can't number them. They're too many. And each one of us is different because of the causes and conditions that made us this way. To really know what that is, to understand ourselves in this way, in terms of the truth of our practice as we sit. We don't really know. There's a whole practice in Korean Zen of don't know. You just sit in don't know mind. Sometimes when sitting is kind of agitated and worrisome, that's a wonderful way to begin your sitting. Just realize, oh, I don't know. I really don't know. That's the truth of it. We can put together all the ideas that we have, but they're, they're just thoughts. 
actually it's all thinking. And while we're thinking and trying to figure everything out and worrying about whether we're a good person or a bad person, the reality is here we are, right here, right now. Somewhere I read that the, the last holdout before you get enlightened is comparing yourself to other people. And I think, well, I don't know about the enlightenment part, but um, that's another aspect of it, that we doubt ourselves. We don't have confidence in ourselves and try to find either somebody better than we are that we can feel or worse than we are. I mean, it's great to look down on people then we can feel superior. Um, feels great. <laughs> Unless we really look at the underneath of us and see what is that doing? What am I trying to accomplish by that kind of mind? So, in Rinzai practice, in Rinzai Zen, they talk about developing great doubt. They encourage you to develop it. It's like biting an iron ball. And they grit their teeth and they develop huge muscles of their jaws. And they sit like, oh, like that. Um, and then the doubt just flies away. That's um, not our Soto Zen way, and I don't think it's the Vipassana way either. <laughs> I don't um, recommend it but it is another way of not knowing. Of not knowing and then out of the not knowing, developing confidence. Confidence is a Latin-based word, confidence, and fidence means fidelity. And fidelity means faith. So really, as we study the hindrances in our own life, as we study the background mind of us that's always churning, always thinking, always judging and deciding and all the things that go on, the more confidence we have to really see who we are, and where we are, and how it is for us, that it's not perfect. It will never be perfect. And yet within that imperfection is a Buddha life, is a life of confidence and faith. Because here we are right here, right now. We got here. We've done it already. 
and we're still doing it, moment by moment by moment. You could say we're fulfilling uh, a mysterious promise just to be here. And our practice itself is such a a wonderful example of how it is that as we sit and our mind drifts off and it's always drifting away even though we mean to sit right here, right now we bring it back. That we ourselves have the ability however things go to always come back. And more and more just be this body-breath-mind to be this life-death person and be it completely and fully in every moment by letting it be what it is, not fighting it, but developing it, growing it, letting it uh, bloom like a flower. It's not always a pretty picture. It's not always a beautiful rose. Sometimes it's a thistle. It's okay. It's okay. We see it. Come back. Okay. So that's what I brought to say. Um, And I know you must have questions and... um, Comments, please. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Helen. Thank you for your your comments, your teaching this morning. I'm just curious, what makes you so cheerful? <laughs> And happy. (laughs) Um, That's a wonderful question. There is joy in practice, in spite of everything. The everything is, I I almost want to say, immaterial. It's all a dream. A serious dream in which we have to take a lot of care and attend to very carefully because it's our job. But there's so much more that, that... we're not only living and taking responsibility for our life, but we are being lived at the same time. And to stay connected with the being lived side as well as the washing the dishes at the same time side creates a sense of joy just to be alive just to be whatever this mysterious thing is that we call me. 
and you. We, we, we have ideas about what that is, but we really don't know. And that's a kind of um, joyful thing, too. Uh, once we get over being a little dizzy, <laughs> you know, it's a little dizzy thought. How can that be? How can we not know? But in spite of all the stories that we tell, uh, the myths that we've created, um, not knowing is... is Well, I don't know. It just creates a kind of sense of delight in things. Oh, look at this. Here we are. Isn't this great? Sunday morning, rain and sun, rainbows, friends. So even though... um, 85% of California is terribly upset at this point, Uh, (laughs) including me. (laughs) Um, It's not worth spending every single living moment that way. And I think the more insight we have into the operation of our own system, how we think, and we each think in it, very different ways, depending on how we were raised, mostly, um, we get a grasp on how to deal with our own angst, how to be with that, and sometimes just to accept it. Oh, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Okay. And then have a way of dealing with not sleeping, getting up and sitting instead or reading some scripture, or repeating a prayer. There are all kinds of ways of dealing with the bad stuff that's happening, including the bad stuff in our ourself. And that's the most important thing, not to turn away from it. It's Mara. Thank you for your teaching this morning. My name is Peter, and you partially answered my question when you spoke to Helen, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, I resonated with what you said about the angst of this time, and um, I was intrigued by your teaching about how uh, coming to the practice, coming to the, the training with doubt can can breed confidence. But I I guess I want you just to say a little bit more about that, how practice and doubting the practice can lead to and breed confidence time. It's, it's, that's a good question. And it's really, it's really important because um, if we think we know, um, it's a mistake. 
if we're too confident, it's a mistake. So it's better to keep an open mind and an equanimous mind so that we're not always going out and thinking one way or thinking another way, but just staying in the middle. And in Gill's new book, it says the earliest, early, early, early teachings of Buddha, Buddha says his basic, basic teaching is to have no view at all. Even the view of having no view. So, whatever that is. <laughs> so, I, I think we have to doubt, and Buddha encouraged doubt. He asked his, his disciples on his deathbed, Buddha, invited his disciples to give him their doubts. Do you have any doubts before I go? Hoping that they did. Because that's how we unfold. And they didn't. And it created a mess, actually, after he died. (laughs) Because they argued about what he really said and who got to be what. And um, it, it all became the human element in groups of having to um, reassemble themselves in ways that would have been easier if they had just opened up to Buddha. But they were so freaked out about his dying that they just couldn't do it. And I can imagine doing that exactly like that. (laughs) So it's it's not one thing or the other. It depends on the kind of doubt. Scientific doubt is extremely important. Now that's how science works. You're always doubting what you come up with and you're always looking for something else. And if you think you've got it forever and ever, you're, you're always wrong. It's always opening into some new, deeper insight. It's tricky. Thank you. Um, my name is Sylvie. Um, thank you for your talk. I was very inspired and touched by your deep humanity and heart that comes shines through. Uh, I have a follow-up question on on Peter. Uh, just to hear it in a different way. I know you've been talking about doubt, but um, if you extend this to um, outside the practice of doubt in your life or your abilities, I'm very interested to hear how that kind of doubt in one's ability is the doorway to confidence. If you can elaborate on this. I think it helps because it creates a... Either you drown in it, and you just go down, glug, 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 and you're gone, or you pull yourself together and try to figure it out in some way. And I'm in my life, in those old days from the journal, I can see that I just kept 
doing it anyway. I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing, but I will just, just do it. And somehow it all worked out. I, I, and it was very, very helpful, actually. It was the first time I ever saw that I lied. And then I realized that I often told lies. I often did. It was unbelievable. <laughs> there's a practice with the precepts where you uh, take it home and you see how you can work with it and you see how many lies you tell all day long without even realizing it. So just that kind of knowledge, self-knowledge, was enormously helpful and created um, out of the doubt and out of the shame, deep shame really, um, this kind of a determination to make something better out of this, to make it more wholesome. And um, I didn't want to be ashamed. And I didn't want to be ashamed before my dearest friend, really one of my best friends in the Sangha, and I, would, I made him very unhappy. So I think you just let life blow back in your face and shine back from all sides. And we're being taught constantly. The teaching is everywhere. We just have to take it in. Take it in. Thank you. Um, my name is Noelani, and um, I'm glad you brought up the journaling because that's what my question's about. Because um, you started out saying how you'd kept a journal since you were 11 years old, and. Um, I found that when I started studying mindfulness in 2000, um, that the journaling journaling kind of seemed to lose its power because I felt like I was cataloging the day's events when I was really struggling to live in the moment. And so I was wondering if you could comment on your experience with keeping a journal and how you found it helpful to your practice. Well, one of my big doubts was should I keep on writing? Uh, when I uh, got more deeply into practice, it seemed like I should stop. And in the journal, in 1977, I asked my teacher, should I stop writing? Oh, no, he said. No. Most honesty you keep, he said, in his funny English. Um, so... I kept it up. I was a writer. I am a writer. And so it was actually a practice, sort of like ikebana and calligraphy. (laughs) Writing is a practice, too, from which you are operating from down here, not up here. And so it was helpful. But it depends on the time of your time of your time and your practice and how it works sometimes it gets terribly in the way like reading gets in the way you can read way too much when you should just be sitting on the cushion 
Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is John. Uh, what will you do with your journals now that you've pulled them down from the attic? Oh. <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> I started reading them actually a few days ago because I realized that I was a big part of putting Chikoji together. If you know Jikoji, it's a retreat center um, up Saratoga Road. If you could ever get up Saratoga Road again, <laughs> it's, it's up there, off of 35. And uh, it was a huge project that we put together so that my teacher, Coben, would have a place to teach from and where we could have retreats without having to carry the Zafus and Zabutans around with us. We would have them all right there in one place. So it was a, a, it required enormous effort. Um, and I thought, I have some information in, in my journals about how we put that together. So I'm looking for those, but it's what I suspected, and I'm finding more, much more, about poor little me <laughs> and all the bad things that are happening to me. <laughs> so I'm not finding as, as much information as would be very helpful. <laughs> so it's interesting, though. It's interesting about the relationship I had with my teenage boys. I had three boys. And they were in their teens, and it was it was agony in many times, and the marriage and the ups and downs of the marriage. So it's fascinating to read. It's about it's like reading about somebody else, because it's all different now. It's totally different. Uh, was the little lies, or maybe they weren't so little, that uh, you said you discovered about yourself? Uh, did you have trouble being honest to your journal? I don't think so. I think that was that was the reason for the journal was a place where I could be totally honest about everything. When I was in college, I was given a little typewriter uh, as a gift. And I called it Elizabeth. And I kept a journal calling it Letters to Elizabeth. And it was like, it was my best friend and I could tell her everything. And I've continued with that kind of feeling all the way through. Oh yes, I can just say this. Nobody will nobody'll know. And and it helps so much to see it back. It objectifies what can seem very painful as just another thing, another thought. It's just more garbage, really. <laughs> but it's hard to see when it's running around in your heart and mind. And if you see it on paper, ugh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's what it is. 
That's very helpful. And it's helpful with the good stuff too. You don't appreciate things sometimes, at least I don't, until I start describing how the trees, the bare trees, are branching out like this and how high they are and the little squirrel nest up there and I can go on and on and finally I realize I'm in such a beautiful world. And helps. It helps a lot. Do you keep a journal? I did a long time ago and then I decided that all I was putting in there was the little details of the day that, you know, really was, was not the essence of me or anything like that. And I, I just sort of dropped it at some point. When Rather I, than going back and saying, well, there's so much going on in here. I mean, I just didn't realize how much was going on inside <laughs> of me at the time. And so it just didn't uh, come out in the journal. When my husband and I used to get in arguments about things, what things happened, how they happened, and I would say, I'll, I'll prove it. I'll look it up in the journal. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> it's very helpful that way. <laughs> Keeps us honest, right? It's really time to stop, but I'd like to thank you so much for your talk, so much for the Q&A, and so much for Jokoji. Such a special place. Thank you, Angie. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much. <laughs>